Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, today we mark the beginning of our trek through the 66 books of the Bible. It's kind of exciting, isn't it, that we're starting to actually get into the books. I know, we, I mean, obviously we don't need to do them in order, but, um, you know, maybe we'll flop from New Testament, Old Testament, or from one type of literature to another type of literature just to keep the variety of Scripture before us. That would kind of be exciting. But we will, we will deal with each book in its entirety every time we, we look at uh, particular books. Great. Uh, well, now, if you have not already listened to the first six podcasts of The Word is Out, I encourage you to do so. They provide an excellent introduction to the inductive Bible study method foundational instruction on how to properly read and interpret the Word of God. Yeah, those those six uh, podcasts are important insofar as they lay the foundation for everything that we're doing, because the very basis of our study is an inductive methodology. And so to properly understand how we get to where we're going and how we analyze the books and understand the message of the writer, it's really incumbent upon us to to have a look at, you know, the precursors, how, what exactly we're doing, what exactly inductive Bible study is, and so forth. So I would encourage folk also to, to have a look at those six podcasts. Now, on to Genesis. Generally believed to be a book about beginnings. Is that your interpretation of its purpose, Alan? Well, I, I mean, obviously, it is a book about beginnings. Genesis actually means beginnings. But, you know, I, I think there's something far more subtle about the book of Genesis than, than would meet the eye if we simply said it was a book about beginnings. It's the first book in the Bible. And in many ways, it's the book that introduces the reader to God. Hmm. And throughout the book, there are so many clues that are given to really understand the book beyond simply beginnings. It is a book about God, ultimately and finally. You know, people think that the stories are stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and creation and fall and flood and so forth. But the reality, Kip, is that um, it's really not about Abraham. It's really not about Joseph. It's really not about creation. It's really about the God of creation and the God of Abraham and the God of Joseph, which makes, you know, that isn't simply a nuance of words. That really is the essence of what Genesis is about. It is about a God who creates. It is about a God who is a covenant maker. It is about a God who is a God of providence. It is, it is about a God who is a God of transformation. It is a God who is a providential God uh, who provides for his people and looks after his people. And so the story of, of uh, Abraham, for example, is really a story about, can I trust this covenant maker? With uh, Jacob, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a story about transformation. You know, this is a God who can transform human lives from a Jacob to an Israel. It is not so much a story about Joseph as it is a story about how God providentially works circumstances in such a way as to bring from evil ultimate good. So it's an exciting book. And it's it's really just to say that it's about beginnings is really, uh, in so many ways, just to underestimate, I would say, underestimate the book. It's a great, great book. And um, it as the first book in the Bible, it introduces us to the God of the Bible. And I think ultimately that's its far greater function than being just about beginnings. 
Yeah, we do tend to focus on the characters that are so vivid and wonderful in Genesis. I, I love reading those stories, and uh, it, it, we never really tire of them. But we do tend to to think about the those individuals as opposed to God um, in the first place. And it's really not. It's really not. To properly understand the book, it's about the God of Abraham, the God of Joseph, and the God of, mm-hmm. of us, our God, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what would your inductive overview of Genesis be? I mean, I know we we talk about always in these first six podcasts, we talked about look at the big picture um, and then and then drill down into the into the meat of the matter. So what would that inductive overview be? Good question. I mean, there are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that uh, the, the book falls into two major, major divisions. The first division would be chapters 1 through 11, which is basically what we call primeval history. And then from chapters 12 to 50 would be what we call patriarchal history. Now, the interesting thing Mm. about that division is that in the first division, the primeval history, there are in fact four major events. There's creation. There's the human fall, the fall of humankind. There's the story, the narrative of the flood with Noah. And there's this story of Babel, um, the confusion of the languages. And, and basically that, that brings the primeval history to an end. It's a, it seems kind of, you know, that history is shot full of hopelessness and failure. So at chapter 12, the book takes a twist. It takes a turn. And you have four major characters in the patriarchal history. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Now, the interesting thing um, in in those uh, four major characters is that they basically occupy, what, 39 chapters. Primeval history occupies only 11 chapters. So immediately we can tell in the mind of the writer, what is more important, primeval history or patriarchal history? And and by sheer volume, we must assume that the mind of the writer is engaged more attentively, more significantly in the patriarchal history. Um, We move from the creation of the world and all the peoples in the world to one tribe, the tribe of Israel. We move from Eden, the story begins in the Garden of Eden and ends in the place of Egypt. The story begins with the sin of humankind and ends with salvation. So, but, but chapter 12 is the turning point, and, and in that turning point, we have a glimmer of hope. Because when you read just the first 11 chapters, one can become discouraged, you know, um, and feel that, you know, humankind are off in the wrong direction. And then God, in his grace, enters into the human plight and chooses Abraham, or Abram at that point. And a new history begins, and that history then becomes the basis of patriarchal history. And, and what the Germans like to call Hausgeschicht, which we would translate the beginning of salvation history. So that's the launching point. But how do we best understand Genesis? Well, I, I mean, I, I think both in terms of the writer introducing us to the God of the Bible. I think that's paramount. But also primarily in the fact that his focus is quickly narrowed down from all of humankind to this one tribe the tribe of Abraham, 
right. and the tribe of basically the tribe of Israel. Um, so, yeah, I think the best way to understand the book of Genesis is to understand these two major divisions and, and to recognize that, you know, a writer is obviously going to give more attention to what is more important to him. We're going to see that particularly in Genesis chapter one, because Genesis chapter one is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the entire Bible. And I hope we can clarify the understanding of that chapter a little bit in this uh, podcast. But, you know, okay. the, obviously, if, if the writer is going to spend 39 chapters on four people, as opposed to 11 chapters on <laughs> all of humankind, those four people are going to be very important in his thinking and how God interacts with them is going to be very important in our understanding the nature of the God of Genesis uh, and therefore the God who, who is our God, the creator God, who becomes the redeemer God. You know, he begins as a creator God in chapters 1 to 11, but becomes the great redeemer God, the great transforming God, the great providential God in the rest of the uh, rest of the book. This is a great book. <laughs> now, people have suggested that science largely disproves the creation account of Genesis. Uh, how do you respond to that? You know, I've heard the concern expressed over uh, many, many times uh, that Genesis 1 does not accord with scientific theory. And therefore, uh, by very virtue of that fact, science must be right and, and scripture must be wrong. But it seems to me that that's based on a terrible understanding of Genesis chapter one, which is what I alluded to earlier, one of the most misunderstood chapters in all of the Bible. You know, the interesting thing, when you look at Genesis one inductively, there are certain things that emerge that, that begin to uh, prick the mind uh, and, and cause you to, to ask questions ordinarily you would not particularly ask, for example. You know, I, I've mentioned before that the writer will give more space to things that are of greater importance to him and less space to things that are not so important. So the first thing I want to point out right. is that the creation story essentially in chapter one represents 2% of the entire book of Genesis. Now, immediately that should tell us something, you know? So, you know, the, the writer is not that concerned with creation. It's only one chapter. I mean, it's 2% of the entire book. Now, if creation was important to the writer, obviously he would spend more time with it. But um, and, and even in the description itself, within the text of chapter one, it is amazing how, how little time he spends uh, dealing with some of the, uh, the concerns of that chapter, for example. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, let me just read it. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about that. He's talking about the creation of the entire universe, the stars, the planets, all of that. You know, the things that, that we're interested in nowadays. But the writer uses, dismisses the creation of the entire universe in five words. Now, that's just an amazing fact. I mean, you can't get around that, yeah. you know. So, again, his concern is not with creation so much as it is with the creator. Mm. And that's the basis of the misunderstanding of chapter one. For example, in the first, uh, the first chapter... Uh, actually, you know, the people who um, who designated chapters um, in the Bible sometimes 
got it wrong. We, we all know that. Um, chapter one should really finish in verse three of chapter two. You know, that's the, the end of the creation, that creation narrative. So you have there some 34 verses, some 34 verses. And I believe, I, you know, I need to count them again, but, you know, there's one word that occurs something like 34 times in those verses. So, you know, if anybody looks at the text, there's one word that keeps recurring over and over and over and over ad nausea almost. And it's the word God. So if he uses the word God 34 times or approximately, you know, approximately that number of times, that's that's about once at one every verse that that same word is used. That, that tells you immediately if he's repeating something, it's important to him. So chapter one of Genesis is not about creation. I mean, I need to make that very clear. It's inductively, it's not about creation. It's about the creator. And, and all, the, all the verbs, every time God is mentioned, it's coupled with a verb of action. You know, God saw God, God created, God uh, gave, and, and so on. And God called and, and what have you. So every time the word God is, is mentioned, there, it's coupled with this, uh, with this verb of, of action, which I, I think is just amazing. The other thing that we need to notice is the repetition within the chapter. You know, you have over and over and over again the process. Uh, you have um, there was evening and there was morning, and and you have and God said, "Let there be," and and you have this the term, uh, and it was so, and then you have the and God saw that it was good, and then you have the the phrase and the evening and the morning were the nth day. So you know what we can do, we can simply point out the fact that what you have there. Is what I call the epoch. The evening and the morning is the nth day. And then there's the edict. And God said, let there be. And then there's the execution. And it was so. Hmm. And then there's the evaluation. And God saw that it was good. And then the epoch is repeated. Uh, and the evening and the morning were the nth day. And then you have a repetition again of the epoch the edict, the execution, the evaluation, and the epoch over and over and over again. So what you see emerging in Genesis chapter 1, what, what I totally believe to be an ancient form of, of Hebrew hymnology or, or poetry. Now that's kind of interesting because, again, the writer is not interested in creation per se. He is interested in creator. Now, that being the case, with the repetition and the emphasis on God and the, God, the, the verbs of action and so forth, we have emerging a picture that is not a scientific treatise, was never intended to be a scientific treatise, but in fact is, a, is a, an ancient hymn of worship. So the Bible actually opens with a marvelous hymn of worship to the Creator. So when a person is writing a hymn or a poem, you're going to take some poetic license. You right. know? It's not literal. You know, I mean, I, yeah, it's not, it was never meant to be a literal scientific treatise. I mean, the very text shows us that that cannot possibly be the case. And yet again and again, I hear Christians trying to justify the creation story as over against 
scientific understanding of the beginning of time uh, and the beginning of the world. And, and, you know, the contortions in which they find themselves trying to justify, you know, how this could happen before this could happen. And, you know, how, how could there be day and night before this, the creation of the sun and the moon, for example? You know, these, these are the questions that, that but, but they're totally irrelevant questions because this is not about creation. This is about a God who creates. And so do people, should they be getting hung up on things like literal six days and on the seventh exactly. day he rested? Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, that's, Genesis 1 was never meant to basically write a scientific theory of the creation of the world. It is a hymn of praise. And you know, I love that. I love that. The Bible opens with a hymn of praise to the creator. What could be more fitting? I I love this. I think it's just absolutely marvelous. And and so, you know, we need to, to, to forget all these concerns about, you know, days and nights and sun and moon and stars. And, you know, it's the fact is this. The fact is God created the world. He is the great creator. You know, that's what the writer wants us to understand. His intention was simply to say, hey, we have a God who created the world. And that's all we need to know. It's almost like in film, there's an establishing shot that sets the scene, shows us where we are, and then we get to the good stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So if we don't take the opening chapter literally. Hang on, hang on. I I didn't say you couldn't take it literally. Um, I mean, uh, it depends what you mean by taking it literally. Can you take a poem literally? I, I think you can. But that's different from taking the minutia of what the poet is saying, you know, let's let's take um, Wordsworth, you know, uh, in the daffodils. Um, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vale and hill. And all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Now, did he wonder as a cloud? Uh, you know, no, no. But but is that true? Of course it was true. He wondered as a cloud that floats on high or vale and hill. I mean, so... Can we take it literally? Well, we can take it as true. And so the, the account of creation is true, but it's written in a, in a genre of hymnology or ancient hymnology or poetic form. So, you know, but I would say that the question is, is it true? And yes, of course, it's true. It's true. God is the great creator of God. There's no question. Now, as you were intimating as we go on, I know there's some believers who struggle with the uh, opening chapters of Genesis, and and you know, there's there's the question of um, talking serpent. Exactly, you know, is there a talking serpent and so forth? You know, and, and I understand the struggle. And clearly, the literature is cannot be clearly defined. I mean, I've I've got to say that it can be understood in 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 a variety of ways. But I do want to say that the writer, when he talks about Eden, for example, in chapter two. He actually specifies a geographical location, have you noticed, between the, the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. So he had in mind certainly a geographical place, and therefore he understood Eden to be a literal place. But, you know, if a person is having problems with, with a talking serpent, I mean, you know, I, of course, I, I tend to believe that um, you know, God can do whatever he wants and Satan can take many different forms. And um, so, you know, I, I, I personally don't have any particular problem with uh, with a talking serpent or a talking donkey. 
um, you know, later on in the Pentateuch and the book of Numbers, you know, if I, if I believe that someone can rise from the dead, uh, a talking serpent for me is chicken feed. But for those people who struggle with these kind of questions, I mean, I respect their struggle and understand that they're looking at it from uh, from a very uh, rationalistic, perhaps, uh, point of view. And if I may have problems with it. And, you know, if they if they want to understand this in as literature as in some sense parabolic, I have no problem with that. I mean, they may be right. I mean, this this literature may be in some sense parabolic because it's very difficult to define this particular genre, except to say that in my mind, the writer does have a specific place in mind. He he specifies where it is and therefore. I would think that uh, understanding it literally is need not be a particular problem. I think the bigger challenge might be accepting the idea that uh, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not, yet they both sacrificed. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, you, you, <laughs> the, the thing about the text, when you consider the two sacrifices, the acceptance of um of Abel's and uh, and the non-acceptance of Cain's um, are another one that I often come across is uh, a question that people would ask, who did Cain marry? Mm. Because, you know, at, the, at that point, it seems that Adam and Eve just had Cain and Abel. And and when Cain was banished to the land of Nod, you know, who, who was that? Was there anybody there? Where did they come from? The basic fact is we do not know. And as a biblical theologian, I say that what I want to know is what the writer, is it what's in the mind of the writer? And the writer doesn't tell us why. Mm -hmm. The writer does not attempt to answer the question of who married Cain, and therefore it wasn't important to him, you know? And so, so as a biblical theologian, my response is, if it doesn't matter to the writer, it doesn't matter to me, it doesn't matter to the reader, because... If the writer had wanted the reader to know, he would have said, he would have explained it. But the very fact that he didn't shows me that it was of no significance to him. And he didn't think twice of having to justify it or having to explain it. He just basically stated the fact. And it is the job of the biblical theologian through the inductive method to simply try to get at the mind of the writer. Is there any kind of theological base expressed in this opening book? And uh, what picture of God is it painting? Oh, yeah. I mean, if Genesis is uh, wanting to present the God of the Bible, I mean, this is our first introduction to the God of the Bible, then, uh, yes, there are certain themes that are very evident uh, within the book that I think are, are important because, you know, we talked a moment ago about the, um, the, the talking serpent. But the interesting thing is that one can see the writer's development of a theology based upon the intrusion of the serpent, because the serpent presents to Eve in particular, and also to Adam, but particularly to Eve, presents a false view of sin, a false view of self, and a false view of God. Now, that's fascinating. Because, you know, he basically says, oh, you know, God told you not to. Well, you know, that's not true. And God is, uh, you know, he's a jealous God and he doesn't want you to become like God. And basically, there is the development of a theology of the serpent, which provokes distrust of the creator. And that distrust then leads to disobedience. 
and the disobedience leads to the curse. Now, that's kind of an interesting, the writer is setting up a basic uh, paradigm of that which is antagonistic to the creator. In contrast, when we get to chapter 12, when you have the call of God to Abraham, what you have there, in fact, God reveals himself directly to Abram. He reveals the truth as opposed to the untruth. Abraham responds with trust as opposed to distrust. And Abram <laughs> obeys God as opposed to disobedience of Adam and Eve. The interesting thing is that Abraham's response to God results in blessing. So what you have here are two paradigms running side by side. The theology, if I might call it the theology of the serpent, the untruth about God, self and sin, leading to distrust, leading to disobedience, leading to the curse. And in contrast, you have the theology of Abram is call. You have the truth, which results in trust, which results in obedience, which results in blessing. Now, the interesting thing about that is that those two paradigms run side by side throughout the entire scripture. You can detect them throughout the, all the pages of the Bible. And you can, you can reduce everything to either the theology of the serpent or the theology of Abram's call. So, you know, in that sense, it lays the foundation. But Genesis does a lot more than that as well. I mean, after the flood in chapter six, God, uh, a beautiful little phrase that you see throughout the book of Genesis is God remembers. And in this case, God remembers Noah. God remembers Abraham. God remembers Joseph. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a reiterated phrase. And, and what it basically means is that God recommits himself to a fallen world after the flood. He doesn't give up on humankind. He recommits himself. I think that's a beautiful picture of God. And he reestablishes his covenant with humankind. He resolves to begin again. So what you have here is the theology of Genesis, which begins with God as creator, becoming the God who is a God of Redeemer. So, you know, and, and right at the very end of the book, I love the way the book brings to an end. You know, you remember that Jacob and Joseph are both buried in the land of promise, because the interesting thing is they do not want to be buried in Egypt, because the promise was never for Egypt. The promise was for Israel in the promised land. And the interesting thing is that Joseph and Jacob, you have them requesting not to be buried in Egypt. And, and Joseph's bones in particular, when he died, the people of Israel carried his bones for over 400 years until they were buried. Because those dead bones spoke of a living theology. And I think that's absolutely amazing. And it tells me that when a man or a woman of God dies, nothing of God dies. Genesis is so replete with amazing theological insight, laying the foundation for who this God is that we will discover throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So, Alan, then what is the significance of the fall of humankind and then subsequent expulsion to the land of Nod? You know, in passing, I just want to tell you that there's a village in uh, in England that I've discovered that is called the Land of Nod. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute. But, but uh, be that as it may, the interesting thing 
is uh, following the, the, the story of the fall. You've come to a place where God has created a, a perfect world. He's placed within that perfect world humankind uh, to govern that world. And things start going wrong because, as I mentioned before, this theology of the serpent begins to poison, begins to uh, undermine the truth of God's revelation. And as a result, it leads to this distrust and disobedience, which leads to the curse. And the curse will banish the people. Now, the, the interesting thing for me is that uh, when a humankind are banished from the Garden of Eden, there are, uh, there are angels, uh, cherubim, I believe, that are placed on the boundary so that humankind cannot find their way back to Eden. Now, what is significant about that, it seems to me, is that there is in Eden the tree of life. Remember, there are two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, and the, the tree of life. Now, the interesting thing is by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by the way, I don't think these were any particular unique uh, breed of tree uh, per se. I, I think it was just God just chose any tree as a means to, uh, to test obedience and disobedience. Um, I don't think it was inherently an evil tree per se. But having said that, when they were expelled, you see, the important thing in understanding the expulsion is they were removed from the tree of life. And they couldn't get back to the tree of life. And that tree of life, by the way, occurs back in, in Revelation, at the end of Revelation. Because the tree of life marks the place of the presence of God and communion with God. And, and it seems to me also, if I may press the, uh, the, the illustration a bit, the idea of this tree of life is intrinsic to the whole structure of the tabernacle and the temple. In the inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was covered with the mercy seat, you remember. And beyond the mercy seat are the two cherubim, the wings touching. So basically, the Ark of the Covenant formed a throne on which God reigned over his people. And that's very clear from the Psalms. Uh, you know, the Lord sits as king over the floods. The Lord sits as king forever. I mean, this reference to him. So in, in, in effect, the Ark symbolized the throne of God, the very presence of God, in the same manner in which the tree of life also symbolized the holy of holies, the, the very presence of God. And interestingly, when you had the, you know, you remember b between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was a curtain. Right. Embroidered on the curtain were two cherubim, just the way there were standing at the boundary of the Garden of Eden, not letting humankind mm. back either to be part of the tree of life or in throughout the Old Testament cultus into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in once a year. So, you know, the, 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 the figure that you have uh, in Eden is continued in so many ways. Um, and, and indeed, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, you had, you had basically the platform in which the body lay and you had two cherubim, you know, so there was a sense in which that grave became the Holy of Holies. So man's venture has been 
to get back to the tree of life. And that's what the entire story of the Old Testament, New Testament is all about. So man is on a journey. We're all on a journey, in effect. And we are all seeking to get back to the tree of life. But we've been banished as part of humankind to this land of Nod. I love the name. And we cannot escape the land of Nod. But God can still be known in the land of Nod. And that's why God sent a savior into the land of Nod to redeem us. Uh, because there was no escape ourselves. Now, you mentioned two major divisions in the book. Do they bear any relationship to one another? Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. I mean, the relationship between the two major divisions, I think, is phenomenal because, you know, what you have is chapters one through 11, essentially a story of, of human failure, you know, human sin, the spread of human sin. You know, the first murder, and then, you know, from the first murder, sin becomes rampant. And when you get to Babel, you know, you in many ways, you have the ultimate rebellion against God. You know, these people want to be like God. And so there's a breakdown. Creation has not responded positively to the creator. So as a result, the role of the creator must now change from creator to redeemer. And so at the end of chapter 11, and into chapter 12, what you have is the anticipation of a new of a new history. But the interesting thing about this new history is that the women of Abram, of Isaac, of Jacob, are all barren. Oh, yeah. So the question now in chapter 12 becomes a different question. That's why the creator becomes the redeemer, because the redeemer now makes a promise to Abram. And Abram becomes the promise bearer. And, and God then is the promise maker. And so the question that remains throughout the rest of the book is, will the promise bearer trust the promise maker to redeem the promise bearer. And we see time and again that trusting is never an easy thing. We saw that with Abraham when he became Abraham. We saw it with Jacob. Uh, the great scandal of the book is, you know, Jacob was a schemer. And will this yep. schemer who relies on his own initiative, his own ability, will he trust the promise maker? Yeah, but you have the beginning of an entirely new history beginning in chapter 12. And the question then is, you know, will Abraham trust and time and again, you know, he fails. And, and will, will Isaac trust? Will Jacob trust? Uh, will Joseph trust when things are going against him? And, and every time one of the ladies is barren, the promise is placed in jeopardy. So the question is, are we going to trust the promise maker when things look really bad? I mean, can we do that? That's the question. So every time we read these stories, we recognize that, the onus is on the promise bearer to trust the promise maker if the promise is going to be realized. Mm. As we wrap things up for this podcast, do you think Genesis has anything to say about the conflict today over the land of Israel? I think in some ways it does, but my fear is that oftentimes much, too much is made of it. But let me just say by way of explanation that there are many who uh, hold on to the fact that uh, because Abraham gave birth to Ishmael as well as Isaac, that uh, and Ishmael became the father of the Arab uh, nations and 
Isaac, of course, the child of promise, although the Muslims will um, believe that to be the other way around. And the hostility uh, between the houses of Isaac, if you will, and the houses of Ishmael, in many ways are seen as the precursors to the conflict that we now have in the Middle East. And to some extent, that's the case. But Israel occupied the territory uh, from Joshua, the, the promised land, if you will, uh, from uh, Joshua to the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, but during that time, you know, there were lots of invasions, uh, the invasions by the Mesopotamians, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians and what have you. And then after the, you know, they were banished, of course, the, the people of Israel uh, to, um, to Babylon. And then after the return, they occupied the territory less than 200 years, which I think is interesting. And then you have the invasions of Alexander the Great, the Ptolemies, um, the uh, Seleucids, the uh, Parthians, the Romans. So Israel, Israel eventually becomes Syria-Palestine and no longer occupies the land at all. Uh, the territory is dominated by uh, Persia in the 17th century, the Crusaders um, and Saladin uh, in the 11th and 12th centuries and so forth. You know, the, the Mongols, the uh, 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 right up into the uh, the Ottoman Empire, which takes us to the present or the, to the 20th century, and the British, of course, moving in. Uh, I believe it was 1917. So what you have here uh, in Israel is the you have uh, Israel uh, claiming the land by virtue of force or by virtue of power because they've overwhelmed the inhabitants of the land. You have the Arab claim of uh, prior domain because they were there first, they argue, and, and certainly that can be sustained historically. And then you have the claim of promise, uh, you know, the, who, who are in fact the children of Israel. So the conflict between Israel and the Arab territories essentially is a claim of powers over against uh, prior domain. And, and that's, you know, highly debatable uh, on both sides. And, and I, I personally am not convinced that God is in, in the real estate business. And the interesting thing for me is in the New Testament, the, the land becomes spiritualized by the New Testament writers. The reference to Sinai, the reference to Zion, if you look through the, uh, through the New Testament, uh, the writers are not so much concerned with the physical land itself as they are with the spiritual ramifications that emerge from our understanding of, uh, of God's promise. I think the old order has changed in the coming of Christ. Um, I think peace uh, is only possible through the new order that Paul talks about when he writes to the Ephesians, for example, and says, you know, that there is neither Greek nor Jew, but all are one in Christ. And God has taken down the, the barriers between people. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither Jew nor Arab. I mean, if that were the case, then obviously all our problems would be solved, and that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Yeah, indeed. And on that note, Stay tuned for future podcasts of The Word is Out as we continue to go book by book in search of truth and understanding inside God's Word. Next time, we'll explore the Gospel of John. Alan, give us a quick tease. <laughs> um, it's one of the most unique, well, it is the unique Gospel, um, and, and one in which the writer tells us why he's writing. These things I'm writing, he said, in order that you might believe. Makes it very clear. I want you to believe, and in believing you might have life through his name. No other book stands out with that clearly defined purpose, as does the Gospel of John. So to elicit belief, one of the great books of the Bible. Mm. You've been listening to The Word is Out, 
a podcast on a mission featuring Dr. Alan Meenan. If you'd like to know more about The Word Is Out, visit us online at www.thewordisout.com. You can also keep up to date through our Facebook page. We'll be back with another podcast soon.